morning, Southbridge. Glad you're here today. If you are a guest with us, a special welcome. Hello. I just want to say hello and welcome. So hello and welcome <laughs> three times in like 10 seconds. Uh, anyway, uh, glad that you're here and uh, thank you for coming. I know for some people to come to church is a, is a step towards God. Maybe you're checking them out, trying them out. Some people might call a step of faith. I know it's not believing in Jesus, but uh, thanks for doing that today. And so we appreciate that. If you wouldn't mind in your worship program, there's a little connection card. If you would fill that out, take it out at the first time guest kiosk. We've got a gift to give you. And if you're not sure if you want to do that and if you don't want the gift and all that kind of stuff, if you want, you could still fill it out and uh, put it in these little boxes. People will be putting their tithes and offerings in those boxes after the service. And if you would just fill that card out and drop it in there, that'd be great. You don't get a gift if you do that, but it'd be great if you'd fill it out and just let us know that you were here. And uh, we want to pray for you and uh, thank you in any way that we can. So if you take it out there, we'd love to give you that gift. And there's other information in your worship program that you can check out. We've been doing this series together, though, as a church called Movement. In a movement series, we've been talking about what, that a movement is a group of people gathered around a common belief. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that's the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the, sins to, uh, died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again offering us life. And when we place our faith in that, we enter to new life with Jesus Christ that should then lead to a life of radical obedience. And that's called the church. As a group of believers come together, rallied around the gospel, living in radical obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what the church is supposed to look like, and that's what we've been talking about in the book of Acts. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray for us as we open up the word, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 in just a moment. Let me pray. Father God, we come into your presence recognizing that you are here. Um, that We know that you're everywhere, that you're omnipresent all the time, but God, I pray that you would be here um, encountering us and engaging us in worship, speaking to our minds, speaking to our hearts. As we open up your word, God, will you remove distractions? There's a spiritual battle taking place all around us all the time we don't see. Will you do that battle for us, that we could just find rest in your word, that we'd encounter your son, Jesus Christ, that you'd speak to us through the scriptures by the power of your spirit, and you'd enable us to do the very things you call us to do through this message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, last week we left off in Acts chapter 2 in what was really a climactic passage of Scripture, kind of dramatic passage of Scripture where the church began and a bunch of people made a decision for Jesus Christ. Remember what was happening is that Jesus, right before he ascended, left his believers with a commission. The commission was Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the outline of the book. It's a theme through the book. And it simply says this, you're going to be my witnesses. It's not, would you be? It's not, I want you to be. If you're obedient, you will be. It says, you will be my witnesses. You'll be the testifiers, the proclaimers, the declarers of my presence in this world. This will happen. And you're going to receive power to do that very thing. And after that, the believers, they go into about a week-long prayer meeting. And they're gathered together praying, 120 of them. And then the Spirit of God comes upon them. They begin to declare the greatness of God in languages they've never learned before which we've talked about was really a reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know in the Old Testament there's a story where everybody in the world spoke the same language at the same time and they came together in this city and they were going to build a city and build a tower, the Tower of Babel. They're going to build a tower that declared their greatness. And God came in and he said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And he separated them, put them all over the world, gave them different languages and sent confusion. Confusion was really the curse that took place there. And then God's reversing that in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, as he brings all these people together from all over the world to speak all these different languages, and instead of creating confusion, he gives them clarity. And instead of declaring their greatness, they're declaring the greatness of God. And so he's reversed these things, and it's drawing a crowd as these 120 people are doing it. Thousands and thousands of people are gathering around. And so Peter stands up to start explaining to them what's taking place, because they don't know what in the world's happening here. And Peter starts to tell them from the prophet Joel, and from David the prophet in the Psalms, he starts to tell them, your book talks about all the things that's happened. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all been pointing to him. He's the promise. He's the hope. Here's the problem. You rejected him. They did the same thing we do. They turned their back on Jesus. Some of us do it because we think that we know a better way. And you wouldn't know it by looking at our lives. We, we look like Christians. We come to church and we're kind of got everything together. But we don't live our lives based on God's promises. And we don't live our lives by faith. We do what we think is the best thing to do. And some of them were like that, and that's how they turned their back on Jesus. Some of them were overt sinners, and they cried out, crucify him at Pilate's palace. And they were just kind of the people that shake their fist at God, and they're going to do their own thing, and they rebel. But then they came to the place where every person that's a follower of Jesus has to come to, where you realize that what you're doing is not working. And whatever you're doing and whatever path you're taking that's opposite of God's path you've got to come to the realization that I need a, a different way. I need a different, I need a fresh start. And if anybody ever needed a fresh start, it was the people in this passage, and they cried out to Peter, brothers, what do we do? Can we have a fresh start? And Peter says, you can. 
but you gotta repent. That doesn't mean feel bad, that doesn't mean ask for forgiveness. That means that you realize the way you're going is not working and you turn to God and you turn to his way and he says to them, to these Jewish people, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and that day 3,000 of them were. Exciting, climactic, dramatic, it was awesome passage of scripture, but then what? Because have you ever made a decision for Jesus Christ, whether it's to be baptized or to trust Christ as your Savior, maybe a new step of obedience, you're going to step out and do something he's calling you to do, but what happens after that? Because the decision is exciting. But then there are oftentimes questions, but then how do I live the Christian life? How do I follow up with this decision? What do I do after this point? That's what our passage is about today. It's what happens right after that. It's how to live the Christian life. If you have your Bibles, it's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to start reading there. And oftentimes the exciting thing is when you make the decision. 3,000 people coming to Christ, that's an exciting thing. But then what? It's exactly what we have in this passage. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In verse 42, Luke tells us what these people did. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 43, he unpacks all those things. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Verse 46, everyone, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, that's their large group gathering, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, that was their small group gathering. And verse 47, just kind of how life was going, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so it wasn't just a one time 3,000 people came to Christ. It was a continual revival where more and more people were getting that fresh start, experiencing forgiveness, knowing what it is to have grace, knowing what it is to live in freedom. And where did it come from? It came from these people as they were living their lives and being transformed. But what do we notice about these people? Go back up to verse 42, and the first two words tell us something. They devoted. These were devoted people. And what does it mean to be devoted to something? Well, we're all devoted to something. Your devotion is where your time goes, where your money goes, kind of where your affections are at, where your energy is focused towards, those things that you think about when you get some space in your life, whether it's laying in bed at night or you're exercising or you're just driving in the car and you don't have the radio on, kind of where your mind goes to, those kinds of things. So what are you devoted to? I just want to ask you that simple question today. What are you, evaluate your own life, what are you devoted to? Not what should you be devoted to, what do you wish you were devoted to, but what are you devoted to? Where does your time go? Where does your money go? Where do your resources of energy and affections and desires and thoughts, where do they go? Because we're all devoted to something. Now the idea of devotion, just in the word itself, has some religious connotations. In fact, if you look it up, dictionary.com, free dictionary online, the classic Webster's dictionary, you'll see religious language either describing the word or defining the word. They'll talk about things like prayer, they'll talk about the devotion that's there, and it's probably no better place do we see devotion than in religion. So you think about religion we see throughout the world, think about the major world religions we see devotion. For instance, maybe you could look at Muslims and Buddhists, but look at sports. That's probably one of the major world religions. Think about sports. Think about how devoted people are. I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl last week. I know some people weren't interested in the teens, but for some people it's the only sporting event they watch all year. For some people you just watch it because of the commercials. There was one commercial during the Super Bowl that illustrated this perfectly. There were two guys, they were sitting on a couch and they were watching, there were 49ers fans. One guy had a Joe Montana jersey on, the other guy just had his 49ers gear on. They were eating chips and salsa. I don't know if you remember this commercial or not. And the guy's holding the chip and they're watching the game and something happens and they jump and then this stain falls on his shirt. And it looks like the face of Joe Montana, who's a very famous 49ers quarterback, and his friend looks at him and points and says, Miracle Stain! He's all excited at this moment. And then there's like a quick little segment where they, he does all these TV shows, like daytime television, talk show at night, like does all this stuff. And he's telling his story, how did he get the miracle stain? And what happens in the commercial is he takes his jersey, he mounts it above the fireplace, frames it, mounts it above the fireplace at his house, and then they show it's Montana land. And there are people flying in. They're coming from all over the world. There's a big line of like thousands of people coming into this guy's house to come and pay homage to the miracle stain. Which seems ridiculous. At the end of the commercial, his wife washes the shirt because she's a Ravens fan. It's kind of cool. Little ending <laughs> happens there, but um, <clears throat> seems ridiculous that this would happen. Let me tell you what happened to me when I was watching the commercial. It reminded me of a true story that I read about a woman who one time in the Southwest—I can't remember exactly where she was at—she was frying tortillas, 
And she claims that on the tortilla was fried the face of Jesus. And so she took the tortilla, put it in a glass container, put cotton around it so it looked like it was floating on a, a cloud or something, and people traveled from all over the place to come see it. What incredible Christian devotion, right? No, it's superstition. It was weird, okay? That's, but people do that stuff to show homage, to show their devotion, to pay like some credit towards the thing that's taking place. And sometimes it's sports because that's where our money and our time and our affections and our energies go. Sometimes we say it's Christianity and it goes towards these things. What are you devoted to? And there are extreme examples if you look at religion. I, I just you do a quick Google search and I found some stuff this week. There's a group of people that go to the vegetarian uh, festival in Thailand. I'm not sure exactly what religion is, to be honest with you. I've read through it. I know they're the Maesong people. They worship Chinese false gods. Uh, they do some extreme stuff. I'm going to pop a picture up on the screen here in a moment. If you have a woozy stomach, don't look at this picture. One of the extreme things that these people do is they pierce their faces because they say they don't feel any pain because of their dedication to the God. And so here's the picture. Now, this picture is extreme. I can't show you all the pictures I found because these people pierce their faces with all kinds of things. They had uh, knives through their faces, guns through their faces, pieces of fruit they pierced their faces with, which I'm not sure how you get a banana, but they had a banana stuck through their face. One guy had a bicycle stuck to his face. Now, here's the deal. They say that they do this to cleanse themselves from diseases and to cleanse themselves from bad luck. Now, I don't believe in luck, but here's the deal. If I believed in bad luck, I think having a bike stuck to your face would probably be up there like pretty high on that deal. Okay, I'm just saying. But at any rate, there are people they pierce their, that's to show their devotion to their false Chinese gods. There was another guy, a Hindu guy, back in 1973, who, who wanted to deny himself in this place. And so he raised his hand. You know, some of us, we do that. The scriptures command that even raise holy hands. We do that in worship. And I'll ra- I've even thought about it when I was up here singing this morning. I raised my hand for about 40 seconds. And my arms get tired. It's like, I put them down. This guy raised his hand in 1973, claims he hasn't put it down since. That's 40 years showing his devotion to this false god. There's other guys, you've heard of some of these Chinese monks before, they're famous in the, in the karate movies, deny themselves all their possessions, and one of the things they'll do is they'll break bricks over their head with a sledgehammer. I've got a picture of that. And I've had Christians before, I've heard them say, oh, I just don't like getting beat over the head with the Bible. It could be worse. <laughs> we could do that. You know, what could happen in these moments? These people, they're showing their devotion. We're all devoted to something. We have different ways that we show it. What are you devoted to? It could be bad stuff, it could be you know, addictive stuff, it could be sinful behavior, it could be anti-God type things. It could be good things. It could be your family, it could be your job, it could be whatever thing, working out, health, all kinds of different stuff. Good or bad, let me ask you this question. Are you devoted to, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you devoted to what God desires for you to be devoted to? And before you answer that question, because most people will think to themselves, if it's on the good list, then of course the answer is yes, because God, as long as it's not on the bad list, then God would want me to be devoted to these things, like my family and having a balanced checkbook and being moral and friendly and philanthropic and all that kind of stuff. But what we oftentimes do is we sell God way short on what he desires for our lives. You read the scriptures and what he wants is so much more than what we talk about. We settle for such a tame version of Christianity. You know what God desires for your life? He desires such radical transformation in you that when people see you, they sense him. He desires to so radically transform your life that people would sense him in your life and you would have an eternal impact in this world. And that's what was happening for these believers in Acts chapter 2. And where did it come from? It came from what they were devoted to. Look back at the passage with me. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, verse 43. That word for awe there is the idea that they sensed God's presence. And what were these folks devoted to? You go back through and you'll see they devoted themselves to, verse 42, as the apostles' teaching and prayer and the breaking of bread and the fellowship. Three of the four things there show us that they were devoted to having an encounter with God. And we'll see three different things that these believers were devoted to as we go through this passage of Scripture, but the first one we see is that they were devoted to encountering the living God. And that's our first point. If we want to have the kind of relationship that these people had, where people were in awe of God in their lives, then we must be devoted to encountering God. You see in this passage of Scripture where it says in verse 43 that people were in awe. They sensed God because these people were having encounters with God through their prayer, through the breaking of bread of the Lord's Supper, through their study of the Scriptures as they had another new, fresh encounters with Jesus Christ. And they were encountering God. And you see it as a theme throughout Scripture. As you go through the scriptures, you'll see from the book of Exodus, you see people have an encounter with God when God comes and speaks at, the, at Mount Sinai. 
when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, a lot of times we talk about it like it's just Moses here. All the people heard God speak at that moment. And it changes the way they relate with God because they realize his holiness and they reflect on the fact that they're not. And so what happens in that moment is that they see God for who he truly is. And sometimes we make him so much less than he really is. And it's weighty, it's heavy who he is. And it changes the way they relate to him. So they see God accurately and then they respond appropriately with a humble spirit, a surrendered spirit before him. That's what an encounter with God is. And you see it all throughout the scriptures. You go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah the prophet sees God seated on his throne and he cries out, I'm a sinful man. Woe to me, because when I see God accurately, it causes me to realize who I truly am. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. None of us should be able to speak to you, talk about you, be in your presence. And then he experiences God's grace, and what happens is, he says that famous missionary passage, here I am, send me. Interesting in Isaiah's life, he never goes anywhere. But God uses him because he's fully surrendered to him. He writes a book, the prophet Isaiah, you can read it. It's in the Old Testament. It's a great book, bestseller. And uh, his life's changed. He's transformed when he sees God, when he encounters God. And you see it with Peter, the guy who preaches the sermon that sets this whole thing up. He's in a boat with Jesus. Jesus comes to him on his terms, on his land. There's a miraculous catch, and he falls down, and he says, you're not a normal guy. Away from me, Lord, because he realizes he's Lord of lords and King of kings. And he says, I'm a sinful man. You read the book of Revelation and John, he turns around and sees the resurrected Christ. He falls down as though dead and experiences the grace of God. It's when we see God accurately and we respond appropriately. It's biblical worship. It's one of the core values of our church. We think it's so important. We want you to experience it on a regular basis where you're encountering the living God, where you're seeing him for who he truly is and responding appropriately. And as that happens, you'll be transformed. And as you're transformed, people will sense God in your lives. That's what happened with these people. They were so radically being transformed that it says, and notice verse 43, everyone was in awe. Not just the believers, even people who didn't understand what was taking place here. It says everyone was in awe. Where did that come from? It came from the things that they were devoted to. Go back up to verse 42. What did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For us, that's the teaching in the New Testament. We open up the scriptures and we've got stuff from the Apostle John, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John. We've got stuff, we've got Peter here uh, talking about his, or Luke, one of his associates, one of Paul's associates here. You've got these different apostles and their close friends writing out the apostles' teachings and that's what the New Testament is. But it wasn't quite the same for these folks. For them, it was hearing the experiences that the apostles had. Not only that, this is the breaking of bread, which is probably communion. It's kind of sandwiched here in a bunch of religious language. Some commentators, some scholars believe that it's just a meal. It's just a breaking of bread with one another. But because of the placement here, I believe it's probably talking about the Lord's Supper, which is a time where you reflect on the gospel of Jesus and the key element of his death. And we celebrate his death, which seems like a weird thing to do, but it's because his death brought victory for us. And it's a time to show the unity of a body. It's a time to encounter God. In prayer, prayer is the lifeline of a believer. It's a conversation with the very God who created you. It's time to have encounters with God. And these people were devoted to this, and it makes sense that they would be, doesn't it? When you think about the context, when you think about where the relationship started, when you think about all this happened, there was a one-week-long prayer meeting, then the Spirit of God comes, and then a sermon gets preached, the apostles' teaching. And remember, these Jewish people, they're sitting there, they're listening as Peter preaches, and he says, you must be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a big deal for them. For some of them, it might mean losing their jobs, it might mean losing friends, it might mean being rejected by family, it might mean losing their lives. They don't know what's going to happen. But they started their relationship with that commitment, and it's interesting for us to hear that. Many of us don't like that, and we almost shrug against it because we're so commitment-averse. We live in a culture that will change marriages and change churches and change places we live and change jobs like we change clothes. I mean, it's just continual change. It's just the normal way of life. But these people, this was a serious commitment to them. And so what oftentimes gets pitched in our society is that you just need to believe Jesus, like add him to your belief system, all the other stuff that you got going on. There's no commitment in the call to discipleship. The scriptures don't speak of that kind of gospel. There's a commitment. It's a surrender to Jesus Christ because you're not, what you're doing is not working and you're gonna turn your life over to him. And that's what Peter preached to them and so they devoted themselves to more of that kind of preaching, more of that kind of teaching, the apostles' teaching. Ever ask yourself the question, so what do they teach? What do the apostles teach? What does that mean? Because for us, it means the New Testament. I promise you that on this day, Peter didn't say to them, turn in your Bibles to Acts 2.42, like I did. They were Acts 2.42. It hadn't been written yet. They're living it out. So what in the world is Peter and Andrew and you know, other guys we don't talk about much, Bartholomew, what's he teaching when he's teaching these people? 
Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells them, he gives them their commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, we've done that, 3,000 of them. Then what? And teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. You teach them, apostles, disciples, everything that I taught you. And so what is that? It's the Gospels. It's every command Jesus gave. It's every promise Jesus gave. It's every principle Jesus gave. It's the mission Jesus gave. And you can start thinking through that. So what was being taught to these believers that they were being so radically transformed? Well, try and put yourself in their place. 3,000 of them trust Christ, right? If you just trusted Christ, you came from a Jewish background, and you know you got a mother-in-law or a sister or an uncle or a brother, and they're really committed as a Jew, but they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. What do you want to believe? You want to believe that God will see their sincerity. You want to believe that, that if they died, that God would still let them into heaven, right? But what do you think it was like when the apostles then told them, but I remember the day when we were talking about how do we get to this place and where's the Father and can we go with you? And Jesus said in John 14, 6 is what we have. He said, he said there's only one way and it's through Jesus Christ. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no exceptions. No one comes to the Father except for through me. And what do you think it was like for those first century believers to hear that? But I mean, they're devoted. They're more devoted than me. You know, they would start thinking through all that stuff. Yeah, there should be an urgency in then sharing with them what God's doing in your life. And some of the commands that he's given. He still gives the holiness commands. You know, sometimes we talk about we're in this age of grace and start teaching what Jesus commanded. Be holy as my heavenly Father is holy. Matthew chapter 5 is what we turn to, but how about this? The ones who see God are the ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The apostles would teach that stuff. Everything that Jesus commanded certainly talked about the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. You don't check any of them at the door. They all are there. You're fully engaged and love your neighbor as yourself. And also, here's how people will know that you're my disciples, because you love one another. Not just even because you love them, because they see the way you care for one another. That's how they'll know. Every command. Every promise, you think about the promises and how great some of the promises are. There was one in that passage I didn't even read to you in Matthew chapter 28. I stopped reading a little short. I'll be with you always. We sang about it. Lauren prayed about it. The Lord never leave us or forsake us. I'm sure that they were given the promises. How about this? You're weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'll take your burden. The promises that Jesus gives. And these people, they could bank on the promises of God. The principles, the mission but when he taught them the mission, he probably didn't say, turn to Acts 1.8. They didn't have Acts 1.8. They didn't turn to Matthew chapter 28. They didn't state the facts. The way I imagine it is when I read the Gospels and I see some of the stories is that some of them told what happened that day on that story. Like Andrew. Andrew stands up and as the apostles teaching, he's got his group, he's teaching his group, and he's telling them, I remember when it clicked for me the mission that Christ gave us. Jesus had been preaching one day in a synagogue and he came out and the crowds started coming. And when Jesus looked at the crowds, he looked at them different than the rest of us did. And maybe Andrew started to talk about when we would see the crowd, we'd be dis discouraged and frustrated because we just want to be with Jesus alone sometimes. And all these crowds are always coming and they have so many needs. Like crowds seem exciting, right? But everybody's life is messy and everybody's got needs and there's a bunch of s stuff to deal with, a bunch of situations that are going on. And so we saw all these people and we thought about, I want to eat a meal and they're all going to come and try and get the meal. And I want to be with Jesus and I want. And that's how we looked at it. But when you looked at Jesus, it was like when he looked at the people, he saw something different. It was like when he looked out at them, you saw a look in his eye where he wasn't thinking about what this means for him, he was thinking about what this means for them. And, and one day, I remember, Jesus was teaching, and, and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. Do you realize all the pain and all the hurt? And then he grabbed me by the shoulder, Andrew says, and he walked me over and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And Andrew said, it clicked for me that day that Jesus wasn't the only one to do the work, that we were all supposed to be workers, that there was a harvest and he was calling us to be the workers. And it clicked for him and he told the other believers that, that listen, it's not just the apostles who do this ministry. It's not just Peter and it's not just me and it's not just all these other guys. And he said that it's you. And many times as Christians, we don't get that. I don't know if it's the way we do American church or what it is, but a lot of times we don't realize that God actually wants to use us. And so, and so you might think to yourself, you know, it's just for like the super Christians or the missionaries or the people that lead like organizational ministries or, or pastors, like professional Christians. Like I get paid to be a Christian, so it must be my job, right, <laughs> to do that kind of thing. And so sometimes we think that and you miss the fact that God wants to use you. 
that you're the workers. When he says that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, that there's a priesthood of believers, that you all have direct access to God and he has direct access to you and he wants to use you in this world. And it clicked for them and they got it and God was using them. Verse 47, God was adding to the number daily, not just at their meetings, daily. Those who were being saved, people were given an answer for the hope that they had in their lives. So they were encountering God and it was transforming them through prayer, through the apostles' teaching, through the breaking of bread as they came and experienced God. And we desire that for you as a church. It's one of the reasons why encounter is one of our core values. It's because we want you to have an encounter with God regularly. And as a church, We've been blessed since the beginning, since even before day one of launching the church, of people coming to Christ, people making decisions, people taking steps of obedience. We've been blessed with life change. One of the things that's taken us longer as a church to develop in is what do you do for people after that moment? Like how do you equip them? How do you help them? How do you get them to grow in, in their relationship with God and continue to have these encounters and follow through with that decision? And one of the biggest steps we've taken as a church was this past fall when we restructured our groups to go according to our, our values and we renamed our values and one of our uh, new structures, instead of just having community groups now, is that we've got three different types of groups, and encounter groups are one of them. And they exist for the sake of trying to help people have an encounter with God, see how they can do that on a regular basis on their own, see how they can see him more accurately. And so we do that through the study of scripture, through prayer, through time together and worship. And so we've got groups right now, we've got a couple encounter groups that meet that are specifically focused on prayer. And they'll teach prayer, and they'll pray together. And there's a, a men's group, there's a women's group that meet right now, and, and that's what they do. And so they're trying to teach people how to pray. And they pray for our church. They pray for different things that are going on. They pray for you. If you have requests, we'll submit those to those teams. We've got people that do studies um, that are based on trying to grow in their faith. We had a, a first time ever our foundations class started this past fall. It was an eight-week class uh, for people just talking about the foundations of the faith. How do you pray? How do you study the scriptures? What's God's story? What's my story? How does this all work together? Who am I? Once I become a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? And, and some of those types of things. And I read the surveys that people went through that class. I had people say things like, I was a new believer, and I didn't know what to do next, and this class gave me the guidelines. Kind of gave them the, the trail to run on, the tracks to run on, the tools they needed to continue to grow in their faith. Other people, I've been believers for quite some time, came to the class and said things like, I now am at a place where I want to love God with my whole being. <laughs> it's almost a paraphrase, right, of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's another foundations class that's beginning. It meets on Sunday mornings. It's going to start on March 3rd, and uh, you're welcome to be a part of it. You can go out to our e-groups kiosk if you want to sign up. And there are multiple others that are happening. We had a forgiven and set free group, people that were learning what it really was to live by grace. What a great lesson. It'll take you a lifetime to learn. This really, that, that alone has really rocked my spiritual journey over the last couple of years. It's learning what God's, what does it really mean to live in grace? Not just know the definitions and be able to recite, and I know the verses, but to really live it? Crazy. We got a group of people that do that on a regular basis on Thursday nights, celebrate recovery ministry, and sometimes you, we talk about it, and you're like, well, if I'm not an alcoholic, I shouldn't go. Well, it's actually a study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and a 12-step program of walking and living in freedom and grace. And everybody's invited, and they've got small groups that break off of that, and there's lots of opportunities because we desire to be devoted to encountering God on a regular basis. And it's one of the ways that we do that. It's what these people were devoted to. They were devoted to encountering God, but it wasn't all they were devoted to. You look in the text, and we talked about three of the things. We talked about uh, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, but there was another one in there, the, the fellowship. And they were devoted to one another. And that's our second point. If we want to have the kind of relationship with God that we see these people have, they're so radically transformed that people sense God in their lives, then we must be devoted to one another. It says here in this text, in verse 42, they were devoted to the fellowship. Well, what does that mean? Does that take place at like a certain spot? Like it has to be a fellowship hall? It's got to be named fellowship? Kind of a Christian word, isn't it? And you've got to have cookies and punch in order to have fellowship? Like what is fellowship? Dude, what it really means here is that they were in close relationship with one another. You could go so far as to say that they were so accountable to one another that they took responsibility for one another. Let that sink in for a minute. How many relationships do you have where you actually take responsibility for another human being? Are there any outside of your immediate family? Because these people, they were taking responsibility for one another. They cared about whether another family was discipling their children, whether they were teaching them the truth. They cared about whether or not somebody was emotionally healthy. They cared about whether or not bills were getting paid. They cared about the needs of the people that they were in relationship with. And some of you may remember the first week when we started going through the book of Acts, I was trying to make sure I hammered home, what is this movement that we're talking about? What do we mean by the word movement? And I gave you the definition. It's a group of people gathered around a common belief, and that's true of any movement. 
For us, what makes it unique is that the belief is the gospel, that Jesus freely came by his own choice. No one took his life. He chose to lay it down for us. He laid his life down for us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, to give us grace, to give us forgiveness. We receive that. We become part of this movement. Not just something we attend. We become part of it. And it should be people living lives of radical obedience. And that's at the church. That's what the church is to be, a bunch of individuals living lives of radical obedience that come together. It's the only organization in the world. No parachurch ministry, not IBM, nobody else. It's the only organization in the world that has the promise the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the bride of Christ. And we talked about all those things. What is the church? It's the assembly of believers. Don't forsake the assembly of believers. Talk about all those types of things. But what is it? It's you. You're the church. I'm the church. It's me. It's us. The church is people. And many times, we talk about how in America, what we do is we think the church is something we go to. It's an event we attend. It's something that, that we're part of because we have left our driveway empty at 11 o'clock in the morning and we're here at a place. And that's not what church is. Church is not something we attend. Church is something we are. Now, we come together and that's part of it and there should be corporate worship and that's healthy, it's commanded, it's all those types of things. But it's not just a thing we attend. We're, it's a people that we're a part of. We're supposed to be devoted to one another. You may remember the first week I had to do a really awkward exercise. Because family, right? We can be awkward. We haven't had an awkward family photo yet, but we can have awkward family moments, at least. And I said, look around the room, see the people that are here. And you can do it right now if you'd like to. We're okay with awkwardness. If you're a guest, you don't have to look around. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. <coughs> and I read you a passage of scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another. It's one of the one another's of scripture. And then I ask you, are you devoted to the people that you see? And I realize there's guests every week, and you don't know everybody. I get that, and there's enough people here that you can't know everybody. Totally understand that. But are there people that you're devoted to where you'd actually take responsibility for them, that you would care for their emotional needs, that you would help them pay their bills, that you would let them live at your house? Are there people like that? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves when we look at our society and we see that everything in our society really fights against this, doesn't it? And we're put in this spot where... There's all these things that really foster isolation, foster our controlling what goes in, what comes out, and all that type of stuff. You may remember uh, about a month ago, we had some missionaries in town, Grant and Jody Waller, uh, church planning in Madagascar, Africa. We brought them up front. They were here, and we had a meeting with them, and people got to go see that. Well, we had them over to our house, my wife and I did. We were sitting, we were having dinner. We're talking about just their ministry and the, what's happening with people coming to Christ and all kinds of exciting things. And I didn't want to just ask them about Africa, though. I wanted to ask them about Raleigh. Because sometimes you get so close to something, you don't see stuff. And so I wanted to know from their perspective, how was Raleigh different than the last time they were here four years ago? And so they were living here. And he started to share things with me that I thought, that's new in the last four years? Like, I didn't even realize it. And I said, tell me, what was it like? What did it feel like coming back? What was it like coming into the airport? Was it like coming, just walking through the streets? Like, what is it like being here, having not been here for four years? And the first thing he told me was this. Everywhere I go, people are on their phones. And then he said... And everybody has the same phone. And I thought, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think of that. We're all on our phones. We're all and he said, and here's the statement. He said, you'll see people on their phones right next to each other, and it's like they don't even realize there's other people there. And it got me thinking, especially as I was reflecting this week, and I thought to myself, I can imagine a day, probably when I'm a grandparent, and I'm on a screen with my grandkids. They probably live in the house like next door. And I'm on a screen with my kids. And then one of them says to me, Grandpa. Tell me what it was like to have human-to-human -human conversations face-to-face. -face. Like, what was that like? Come over. No, <laughs> we won't. Well, let me type it in. You know, however we do that at that moment. Our board will tell, you know, whatever happens. Because we're so isolated. And we control who our friends are and what they know about us based on our status updates or <laughs> what we tell them in the hallway at church. And we, do, we, can, we do all that stuff. We decide what gets in. We decide what goes out. We're in control. And we're in isolation. You factor that and you put that into combination with our lack of commitment, our commitment averse society. And do you think you have the kind of relationships that we read about in Scripture? I mean, I've actually met people, and Jason and I joke about one encounter I had uh, specifically when we first moved here. I was at Home Depot. I just moved into a house. I was about to do uh, a project at my house, and I'm talking to this guy who's going to be doing the project, really. And he, we're chatting. And uh, it's very clear to me that I don't think he's probably a Christian hence lots of swear words and him talking about himself and lots of it just seemed like that to me and so then he says to me what do you do <laughs> interesting question i'm a speaker no i said uh i said i'm a pastor oh yeah i'm a christian too <laughs> they think 
really? <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, so where do you go to church? And he said, well, I don't. I find that I do Christianity best by myself. The Christianity he was talking about doesn't exist in the scriptures. Okay, and some of us live that kind of life where because we say the name Jesus, uh, we pray to the God that we think is the Christian or American God that we must be Christian. But what he was talking about was a religion of isolation and non-commitment that is totally foreign to anything Christian in scripture because Christianity is a communal life. It's lived in community with other people. You need other people. It's demonstrated ultimately by Jesus Christ who lived in perfect community with God, the Father and the Spirit, the three of them existing in divine community with one another, and then comes to earth, and think about this, if there was ever a person who didn't need relationships with other people, it was Jesus, he's God, he's self-sufficient, that's what that means. He didn't need relationships. What is one of the first things that he does when he starts his public ministry? He picks 12 guys to come be his closest friends, three of them that he becomes even closer to, because that's how relationships work, right? And he knows, unlike we know, that he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be hurt. He knows they're not going to get it. He knows they're going to let him down. He knows they're going to b- d- abandon him. He knows all the pain that will be involved in relationships. But he still chooses relationship. Why? Because he's demonstrating to them how you live a complete life. He promises life and life to the fullest, the abundant life. You can't have it apart from living in relationship the way the scriptures talk about living in relationship. Here's the thing that we can do as Christians then. So we live in a culture that fights against this. We can do one of two things. We can either kind of bemoan the fact that, you know, you know it's just so tough and it can never happen. Here's a kind of Eeyore complex. <laughs> you just can't have a relationship, you know, kind of deal. Or we could view it as an incredible opportunity to demonstrate to the people that are lacking that what it really looks like. And that's what happened in this passage of Scripture. And what Luke tells us about these people is it was incredibly costly to do this. And Luke records this, what happened for these believers, and he doesn't write down every activity in a couple verses that could happen for these believers, but it's interesting to me what he does emphasize. He says they were devoted to the fellowship, and then verses 44 and 45, he talks about what this looked like. Look at what he says. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That doesn't mean they were all Wolfpack fans, okay? <laughs> or Tar Heels or whoever it is that's your team. It doesn't mean they all like the same. It doesn't mean they all like purple popsicles. Everyone hated the orange ones. That's not what that means. The fact that they had it all in com- everything in common, he's talking about their stuff. The word that's used there, he's talking about their goods. And it says in the next, he clarifies in the next verse, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, some people have talked about this before, especially like cult-type personalities or whatever. They'll talk about um, everybody came together, pooled all their resources, and it was kind of like socialism, except for like the leader obviously had a lot, and everybody else had the same. And so that's kind of how that works, you know, Christian communism or something. First of all, this isn't political. It's totally voluntary. And you'll notice in the text, people still had possessions. They were meeting in homes. They still owned houses. And Acts chapter 4, you'll see that it's voluntary that you'd bring things. It was based on the needs that people had. It wasn't just everybody had the same amount. It was if somebody needed food and water, we'll take care of that. And so what some people will then do is they'll go to the other extreme and demonstrate you weren't required to do this. I think it was David Platt who once said, if you take this text and try and emphasize the fact that you're not required to do this, you're probably the very person who needs to. Now, let that sink in for a minute. If you're looking for a reason not to, you're probably the very person who needs to. The idea of the text here, what Luke is showing us, is these people cared more about people than they cared about stuff. People, each other, were the thing that were the most, the highest priority for them. The most valuable thing to them were relationships. They cared about people more than they cared about stuff, more than they cared about tasks, more than they cared about anything else on this earth. They cared about those relationships, those people, each other. This is a lesson we try to teach to our kids at our house. We'll say to them, you know, people over stuff. You know, you have friends over, and they want to play with your plastic thing, and they're going to break the plastic thing. It's just, but that's just, that's fine. It's just, to me, it's just plastic. To them, it's like the most important position in the world, right? But I'm just like, it's fine. Just let them have it. People over stuff. We kind of drive that home. Or for some of our kids, people over tasks, if they really focus on stuff. It's the people. Every once in a while, don't you wish you didn't teach your kids stuff? Like they tell you something at just the wrong moment. Like this fall, we had our girls, they played soccer together, our two oldest girls. It was our first sporting experience uh, together as a family. And they were very literal in what they would hear the coaches say. And so I would kind of yell. I wasn't like the soccer dad that you hate, but I was still, I was like, go get the ball, you know, kick the ball. And so my one daughter, she was told one time by the coach, just stand right here. And she was going to be back on defense. So she'd stand there. They'd dribble the ball by her. And I'd, 
get the ball. And she's like, but the coach said stand here. Like, I'm standing here. I'm doing what the coach said. You got authority down. This is too literal. You know, it's kind of, go get the ball. And I just emphasize, I'd yell that every time we went to practice, every time we were in a game. I was like, I don't, you didn't kick it in the wrong direction. I don't care. But just like, kick it. Just kick the ball. And I remember one time at practice, my five-year-old daughter, Ava, she comes running up. She was a drink break. They do them like every 10, 15 minutes or whatever. The daughter comes running up. I said, you got to go kick the ball, Ava. She says to me, Dad, why is the ball so important? I'm thinking, my five-year-old's about to coach me on the sideline here, isn't she? And then she says to me, Dad, there are more important things than balls. And I'm thinking, oh, man. She said, people are more important than balls. I'm like, but this is soccer. Like, go get the ball. Just kick it. But she got it. She got the idea. There are things more important. People are more important than things. People are more important than our stuff. And these believers, they got that. And so they shared with one another. They cared for one another to their own detriment, to their own cost. Can you imagine how differently the world would view our God if they saw us living these kinds of lives? And you think about what people think of when they see Christians now. You just want to change their behavior. You just want to get them to vote a certain way. You just want to, all the stuff that's thought about, about us. I read a story, it was about uh, three or four weeks ago, I think it was in Christianity Today, the title of it was something along the lines of Ted Haggart, uh, going to hell with Ted Haggart, so those of you who know Ted Haggart, he's involved in a, a controversy, a scandal, sex scandal, drug scandal, um, he was a pastor, a well-known pastor, was involved, he admitted to being involved in those things and was removed from that, it was all over the media for a while, back in 2006. This pastor was writing an article about how he had originally uh, really despised Ted Haggart, and then he told a story about one day he was sitting at lunch with a friend of his who he described as an atheist, a deep-thinking atheist. He says, we're sitting there, we're eating lunch, and the TV was behind my shoulder, and the atheist friend of mine pointed at the TV and said, do you see that? That's why I won't believe the stuff that you tell me. And he looked over his shoulder, and he saw Ted Haggard's picture on there, and he kind of panicked at first, and he thought he was talking about Ted's hypocrisy, and, and he said to him, he said, but we don't all do that kind of stuff. And his friend said back to him, you just proved my point. He wasn't talking about Ted Haggard's hypocrisy. He said, some of the things that you tell me make a lot of sense. Like that God loves me. He'll take me just as I am. That he'll forgive me no matter what I've done. He says, but what's wrong with you Christians? He's one of your own. And a long time ago, his wife forgave him, and she stayed with him. His kids forgave him, and they stayed with him. But you, you're just so intent on being vicious to this man. And then he said, you eat your own, you always have, and you always will. That's why I won't believe. Why would you want to be one of them when they won't forgive each other even? And that's how he viewed Christians. He was wrong, though, a little bit, because we haven't always done that. That's not how these first century believers lived. In fact, I was reading some this week, and I found a fifth century philosopher who says very similar things that were being lived out here. And he writes to the king, and he tells them, his name is Aristides, and he tells the king exactly what the Christians were like. He says, oh, king, such are the Christians. And he begins to describe these people, where the, where the women, they, they dress different than the other women. They, they're more modest, they're pure. And the men, they're not continually sexually indulgent. And he goes on, and he starts to talk about not just their lives that they live, but he talks about the way they care for one another. And that was really the emphasis of what he wrote to the king. And he talks about if somebody needs to be buried and it's one of their number and they don't have the no money for burial, they'll give the money to each other so that they can have a proper burial. He says those who had bondmen and bondwomen, slaves. And the Christians who had slaves, because back then that was not such a bad deal, they were their laborers, so they treat them as brothers and sisters, even though they're not blood relatives. In fact, they're their laborers. But that's how they treat other people. And he goes on and he talks about, and people had needs. They would take them in their homes. They would bring them into a home if they didn't have a place to stay. And, and he continues, and the one that got me was when he said, that when there were people that didn't have money for food, that people, even though not just out of their wealth, to their own detriment, people would fast and take the money that they would have spent on groceries and they give it to the people that don't have groceries so they can buy groceries. It's their generosity. It's their care for one another. And Aristides ends his statement by saying this, O king, such is their command and such is their conduct. That they're commanded to love one another and they do it. Remember what Jesus says in John 13, 35. And this is how they'll know, you'll, they'll know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, not if you vote a certain way, not if you attend a thing, memorize enough verses, you know, your driveway's empty at 11, not any of that stuff. 
But if you love not even them, they will know if you love one another. And that's one of the things we desire as a church too, that we live out the one another's. The one another's are costly though. It's not just financial cost. Listen to some of the one another's of scripture. And if you get the e-group study, you'll get a full list of these. But here's a few. I read this one to you already. Romans 12, 10a. Be devoted to one another. That'll cost you in every way. James 5, 16 says to confess sin to one another. There's so many times that we have to forfeit what we see as control to be able to confess sin to one another. Oh, and our pride? Man. Galatians 5.13 says to serve one another. That can cost you your time, cost you your energy. Some things that are very precious to many. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, forgive one another just as Christ and God forgave you. Talk about surrendering control. That myth that some of us think. Speak truth to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. That can take boldness. That can take courage. That means you might have to sacrifice them liking you for you to speak truth into their life. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Consider others better than yourself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, love one another. They're all costly, and the scriptures are filled with them. And this is what it's like to live life with one another. And here we see in this passage of scripture, these people were devoted to that kind of life. And you saw it in the way that they cared for one another, the way they were generous with one another, and that's the desire we have for our church. One of our values is embrace, that we'd embrace the one another of scripture, that we embrace one another. And one of the things we offer to try and give an environment for that to take place is our embrace groups. And I'll tell you as a church, it's where we live out biblical community. It's where we live out the one another's. And I'll say, as, as your pastor, I've, we've, I've talked about in the last five, six years of our church existing community on a lot of occasions, there's been times where I've confronted you, but hey, if you don't have this, you've got to have this, poked you, prodded you, pushed you, done all kinds of different stuff, and a shepherd does all those kinds of things. I'm not apologizing for that, but today I want to do something different. I just want to thank you for living this out, because what I think when we look at our church as a whole, now I know there's people that don't have this, there's people that aren't in group, there's some groups that aren't great, I get that. But, as a whole, it's normal for us to be living the way that this passage of Scripture talks about. And the stories that I hear about people living in community, it's this, on a regular basis. And so I just want to say to you, great job. You're doing this. And you're doing a great job at it, and people notice. And it's not abnormal for us as a church to hear reports of people caring for one another like this. So a lot of people don't know, the one little known fact is we have a benevolence budget at our church, and so out of our budget, one of the things we'll do is we'll take some money we set aside every month to help people. It's $1,000. We have $1,000 we set aside every month to help people pay rent, buy groceries, food and water, and shelter are, are really the things they're geared around. And we almost never use that for a member of our church. And the reason why is because the members of our church are taking care of each other. It's not abnormal to hear about, you know, people paying each other's bills, people living together. And I don't mean like roommates, like, hey, let's decide to live together and we'll split the bills. And that's totally fine too. But I'm talking about like, oh, I have a house and you don't have anywhere to stay? Come live with me. Like, that's not like one story. That's like normal. And that happens at our church. People helping each other out, paying bills and doing all that kind of stuff. And so what that does is we still use that money and freezes up to then use it for other people because people in our community come to us too, especially once you get a reputation for this. And we'll help oftentimes with single moms, and they need help paying their rent, or they need help with groceries. And just this week, we helped pay the rent for a, a single mom in our community. And you know how that happened? Not only because you give like to the general budget, but it happened because you're caring for one another, which frees up those resources for us to impact the community with them. It's a ripple effect way of they'll know that you're Christians by the way that you love. Because you're loving one another, it frees other resources for us to impact people in our community by groceries, to pay rent, to do those types of things and demonstrate the love of Christ. And they see you doing it with one another. I heard a story just a couple weeks ago. Somebody, there's a new couple in our church. They've been coming, committed believers, just moved here in town, lots of medical needs. And so another member of our church has been driving them to the doctor on a regular basis. Just a way that we care for one another. It happens regularly. A Christmas Eve service, um, some of you may remember a Christmas Eve service, we do a special time, we sing a bunch of songs, and I'll share the gospel, tell the Christmas story, and at the end, I give an invitation, tell people, uh, you know, if you trusted Christ, check on the card, if you got a prayer request, fill out the, the card, and uh, people trusted Christ, which was exciting, that's always exciting, but one of the requests we got was actually a praise um, that somebody sent in, I want to read it to you, and this is the normal stuff that happens at our church, this isn't just a one-time story, and I won't say the person's name that's mentioned here, because I don't want to embarrass them. Uh, but somebody wrote that came to our Christmas Eve service. I was without a place to sleep on Christmas Eve. I've been asking people for a place to pitch my tent and told no by many people. But, and then says the person's name, but that person saw me, told me to come with him. 
He gave me a place to sleep, fed me a smoked turkey dinner with his family, and invited me to come to Southbridge with them. And they were there. And they heard about the love of Christ. And they saw the love of Christ. Because people are caring for one another. Another example, there's a guy, it's one of our group leaders. He had a client um, who obviously wasn't going to be able to pay him, for one, but two, uh, couldn't buy uh, clothes for his family, couldn't buy food for his family. And so he got online, just emailed a couple of our groups at the time. And it was a guy who was trying to reach for Christ. You know, we talk about wanting to do this, so we want to help each other do this too. And he says, here's the needs. They don't have food, they don't have clothes, and they're not going to pay their bills. And so in a matter of a couple days, people from Southbridge, multiple people, will remain anonymous who they all were, uh, gave money, gave bags of clothes. He said, at my house, showed up like bags of clothes, for the age appropriate for the people in this family, bags of groceries, gift cards for them to go buy groceries, and $1,500 in cash for them to pay their bills. And that's normal. And you guys are doing that. And that's, a, that's not a regular, that's not like a story that happens every once in a while. I pull an isolated story. There are multiple other stories I could share with you. And so great job. You're doing it. Thank you. Keep doing it. If you don't have that, you're invited to be a part of that. You can be a part of one of our embrace groups. Go out to the kiosk. It's out in the lobby after the service. We'd love for you to be a part of one. You get in one that doesn't do that kind of stuff, leave them. Come to another one. You know, there's, there's good groups out there. And there are people that are living this stuff out and it impacts this world. It's radical transformation in their lives that impacts other people. And you see, that's what these people were devoted to, these first century Christians. That's how they lived. They were devoted to encountering God. They were devoted to the one another scripture. And we don't have time for this last point. I'm just going to say it to you. We'll talk about it more when we go through the book of Acts because it's a theme throughout the book of Acts. But they weren't devoted to engaging the world for Christ. That was the third thing they were devoted to. And you read it in verses 46 and 47. It says, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, their large group gathering, and they broke bread in their homes, their small group gathering, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were authentic. In verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. He's the one who actually produces the results. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And what was happening is that they were being transformed and people were drawn to this. They were then doing what Peter talks about in First Peter. They're giving an answer for the hope that they have. And what was happening is then one life at a time, people's lives were being changed. It's the very vision we have for this city is that you would be so transformed that you would go out and then impact the people you come into contact with, where you live, where you move, where you have your being, your job, your workplace, the mom's groups, the preschool, uh, the parent-teacher club, the college campus, the, all the places you go, and people would see that you're being transformed. They would sense God in your life. You give an answer for the hope that you have, and they would be able to experience all that you've experienced, the fresh start that you experienced, the forgiveness, the freedom, the boldness, the newness, the courage to live a life by faith, that they would experience that very thing and that this place would be transformed one person at a time. That's what was happening in the early church and it came because of what they were devoted to. And so I just ask you, what are you devoted to? You're devoted to something. Where your time goes, where your money goes, where your energy goes, where your focus is at, what is it that you're devoted to? And is what you're devoted to today going to make us in the future a church like this? Because every individual makes up this church, you're going to impact our future. What you're devoted to today, is it what God desires for you to be devoted to? Is it what will transform your life in such a radical way that you could have an eternal impact for his kingdom? Let's pray.